Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I am Steve Magnus. I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, partner in crime, Jonathan Marcus. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Steve. I am very excited for today's podcast. This is going to be a awesome topic. I think it's going to be one of the most exciting ones we've ever given the people because you know that's why you're here because that's what we do we give you what you want oh yes 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 this is gonna be a good one i know that one for a fact before we dive into it you know what else is also fun john is last week we had our monthly scholar program zoom session it went over time we normally take about an hour we Logged on, stayed on there for about 90 minutes. We dove into everything from breathing to altitude to peaking to all sorts of training stuff. And it was just like, it's like nerding out with a, a bunch of really smart coaches. Yeah, baller. I mean, I wish I wish I could do it every week and I wish we could do it in person over a cup of coffee or a nice, uh, you know, bubbly beverage. Exactly. So if you want to join in, not only do you get those monthly Zoom meetings, you get access to hundreds, literally hundreds, I think it's in the thousands of hours of of content that John and I have put together and also, you know, gotten from some of the world's best coaches. So check it out. You also get to be part of the Scholar Clubhouse, which is your one-stop shop for interaction with John and I. And uh, again, hundreds of other coaches. And so, all this take- for less than a dollar a day. A dollar a day. We yeah. haven't even increased the price with inflation. So we're basically giving it away. Like, come on. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's it less, becomes- than a, less than a buck, man. It's <laughs> worth less or uh, costs less and less every day. So take advantage of it. You know, take advantage of it. All right. <clears throat> Scholar program. Well, you know what? This week. We got a good one for you. We're going to talk about the ultimate coach. A little bit of rebel, a little bit of scientist. And I love this topic, John. I'm going to go out and say it. I'm glad we thought of this. I'm glad we're going to cover it. Because this has been like the battle of my existence. <laughs> yes, it has, actually. Yes. <laughs> going going all the way back to when I was a young runner myself and getting into coaching or getting into understanding the sport. I have a very scientific mind. I love going that route. But then I'd I'd read up on all the science and be like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. These guys are missing something. They're wrong here. This isn't what works in the real world. And then I'd read up on all these coaches. I'd listen to uh, my college and high school coach, and we'd occasionally try something crazy, and that crazy thing would turn out to to work, and you know, be a quote unquote against the science, and then the science would catch up twenty years later. And I just love this balance between this how to be, you know, a little bit rebellious, go off, try different things, experiment. And then how to, you know, have a little bit of that scientific uh, nature leaning in on it and all that good stuff. Oh, without a doubt. I think all the top coaches, all the best coaches, you know, they're a little bit of both, right? Um, Some are a little bit more proportioned towards Rebel. Others are a little bit more proportioned towards the scientific concrete mindset. But you have to have that. And that's why, you know, we esteem coaches like a Lydiard, who was a rebel at his time, a Sarity, who was a rebel, a Peter Coe, who was a rebel, a um, Joe V. Hill, a, um, you know, uh, Igloy, I mean, Fran Sample, like they were all kind of rebels, right? Because it was challenging the current paradigm about what is the most effective way to train people for performance. And when you think about that, it's like, you can't be too crazy because if you're too crazy and then you start going off the the deep end, so to speak, and you're just going with just your gut and your intuition and what's plausible and what you think might be true without any evidence, then you are not going to get those results. You can get people burnt out, hurt, injured, 
or underperform. But if you're too scientific, you lose innovation. You lose the nuance because you're waiting for that latest piece of research to be peer reviewed and validated through some study that demonstrates this is the way to do it. So in order to find that balance, you have to just, you have to be aware of both, but understand sometimes you got to break all the rules and sometimes you got to follow the rules. I think our good friend Vern Gambetta always summed it up well for me, which is if you wait for the study, you're too late. Yeah, 100%. I agree, man. Because it's, it's, and this is the important part is like you can't, in the coaching world where applying and helping people, you can't, you can't wait until you get to this, you know, I feel 100% confident that this works. I always like to say a good coach or a really good coach, about 80, maybe up to 90%. I'll say 80. 80% of the program is good. About 10% of the program, we don't, you know, who knows? And about 10% of the program probably sucks. And we'll probably find out that we were doing something wrong in a couple of years, you know? Uh, Not so good. Maybe it's 60% of the program is good and then 20 and 20 or what have you. But there's uh, we're, we never get full certainty on this is what works this is what we should do all this good things right and i think you have to live in that 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 uncertainty a little bit and say how am i gonna how am i gonna make it where i'm innovative where i'm trying new things where i'm seeing an experiment with what works but i'm not wor- waiting for the study all that stuff but at the same time that I'm not going off the rails and tr- trying all sorts of crazy shit. And I think that comes from your posture overall, that um, you have to have the scientific mindset of trying to falsify what you believe and you know to be true through evidence versus trying to confirm. And that confirmation bias is what does us in, right? It's because we we only want to nowadays more than ever because of the complexity and uncertainty in the world, we want to confirm what we know. So we go, ha, that person agrees with my theory. That person agrees with my theory. But I was just, you know, looking or listening to a uh, YouTube uh, presentation, a presentation on YouTube, you know, about mitochondrial biogenesis and the presenter's like, here's the experiment we did. Here's our, our hypothesis. And the hypothesis did not, was invalidated. And he goes, as often the case in science, our hypothesis was wrong. <laughs> like, but we come to expect that because every time you know something doesn't work, you're closer to then getting uh, to something that does work because you have to discard all the junk. And so that's why the falsification is really important. And so you're looking for inconsistencies or incompatibilities in your rule or your mindset versus confirmation. Because if you stay in that confirmation bias, then you become that outdated antiquated dinosaur who's quote unquote only old school, right? It's like the people who say, oh, I only do linear programming and that's great. Well, science, physiology, and our awareness has accelerated since then. And he did get a lot of things right through trial and error, but he also got some things really wrong, right? Like no weight training whatsoever. Well, we now know that strength training in appropriate dosage is can really ro- make an athlete a lot more robust to handle the handle better equipped to handle the high volume of running. That is uh, the theme of a linear based program. Or he said, oh, sprinters, all sprinters must train like this marathon training, everyone. It's like, Ooh, very different energy systems. <clears throat> like, yeah, the aerobic will help clearance of metabolic uh, met- metabolites, sure. But then neuromuscularly, they're fried. And so they won't be able to get that limb exchange as quickly because they spent six months of the year running 100 plus miles a week. So we have to be okay with the, uh, the balance and the discontents, um, discontentment of being right and being wrong. And it's not about these absolutes, what's right, what's wrong. It's like, what works now? And it's always that evolution of what works now. And that's the beauty of this approach is you're never wedded to anything. You're always just including the best that's available at the moment. I think one of the better examples of that ever is Dellinger and Bowerman, the organ system. They famously were like, yeah, we're going to include everything because we know the things that generally work 
long, steady running, which they called, quote unquote, Lydiard fartlicks. But Lydiard fartlicks was essentially, and, you know, Dellinger writes this down, goes, we do it to pay respect to Lydiard's innovation, but the Lydiard fartlick is just a long, steady, continuous run. But then they had intervals, like igloid intervals, as they called them, which was these cut down 300s they did year round, year round cut down 300s at the end of workouts. And understanding like that's the beauty of the organ system in that era was the synthesis of all the best ideas in a package that really made, you know, those runners strong and fast. Yep. You know, I, I, I think there's a couple good things that you brought up there is one, it really is that kind of explorer or experimenters mindset. Right. And, and if you look at the really good coaches, like even Lydiard, if and we've talked about this before, but if you look at Lydiard in nineteen sixty versus Lydiard in nineteen eighty or nineteen ninety or even two thousand, um, there are subtle but significant differences, mm-hmm. right? So an evolution. When people say, yes. you know, I'm a Lydiard guy. Well, what one are you? <laughs> Are you the one in the sixties who initially had like five interval days a week? during the sharpening phase or are you one in the you know 80s 90s 2000s whose schedules included maybe three days of sharpening intervals a week so you know and that's kind of the point is that all of these experiment and change and i think once we get cemented regardless of whether it's on this heavy science or other side this coaching side um we run into problems right and I think the other thing that we need to understand here is that coaches, especially during the you know 60s, 70s, 50s, whatever it is, back before the rise of the science um, or clear science on in exercise physiology and all this stuff, like they had to be experimenters, right? And if you look at what they did, and we'll use Lydiard and Sarity, for example, is they and it even igloy what did they do they studied what everyone was doing they studied the science of the day right you read sarity's books and it's very clear like he's very well read on a variety of topics um including philosophy and all this other stuff so and then what else did they do they experiment lydiard was famous for getting to his 100 mile weeks because he tried you know 180 mile weeks yeah. or whatever it was it was <laughs> marathon it was like, every day run a marathon yeah. every day every day was, in the morning before work it was just like <laughs> ridiculous but you know i give him a lot of credit because he's he's saying all right i'm gonna try this like let's see what let's see what it is for me and then that gives me a starting point for understanding what we're capable of or what these athletes are capable of handling etc if i can handle it and same with sarity too sarity did the things he asked his athletes to do i'm gonna lift weights i'm gonna run up the sand dunes right like it's very rare to see a photo in this day and age of sarity in uh, portsea with an athlete not engaged in the activity concurrently as the athlete's doing it. There's no holding a stopwatch on the sidelines. He's out there with Herb Elliott, John Landy, et cetera, doing it. Yeah, exactly. And same in those videos. Like there's a couple of great Saturday YouTube videos where it just shows him, shows Elliott leading the way. And then you see Saturday (laughs) running up these sand dunes behind them. And you're just like, what shirt off and everything just up the sand dunes um but it's like that experimenter's mindset where you're just like okay you know and i think it's it's interesting there because we didn't have such ingrained like knowledge on the scientific front so it pushed like the good coaches of the day to be a little bit more rebellious to try some crazy things and you mentioned something up up you know uh, earlier that i think is really important is sit there and ask, what did they get wrong, right? We were talking offline a little. I forget what Sarity book it was, but, you know, there's one in there that shows him, like, explaining his, like, prancing horse method of running. 
and you you look at the pictures and quite frankly you're like what in the <laughs> hell is this guy doing it's a little out there for sure it's a little out there right you're like what in the hell but that's like you remember back to this time period and you're like man these guys they're coming off of like the 40s and 50s like france stample training like all intervals all day very little science the first science that kind of took charge was like when fred wilt comes around and starts writing up you know research and and stuff like that because the only science before then was uh valdemir gershler's heart rate mm. during intervals mm-hmm. right yep so you didn't have a lot to go by you know so what does sarity do like any other good coach like he's he's a little a little bit rebellious a little bit crazy maybe a little bit too far in some instances but that rebelliousness allowed him to get most or much of the work that actually you know actually does work and just think of the rebellious part that did work lifting weights where else i i would venture to guess in the 1960s there were like who else is telling skinny distance runners to go lift and lift pretty heavy of like squats and cleans and like full movements barbell movements like not meant no no one else was was headed down that path like sarity that's where his rebelliousness like won yeah right yeah so you're gonna get some losses (laughs) you're gonna tell people to prance around but you're also gonna get some major wins if you do it right and the the irony of that is even today 50, 60, 70, 80 years later, there's still the same stigma exists amongst, you know, uh, coaches, holdouts who think that the weight training equals bodybuilding and it's in muscle hypertrophy and that's all that happens, right? And the amazing thing is Sarity got the prescription right. Heavy weights, low reps, not too much. Like, I mean, it was even in that era of the 60s, football coaches were reticent towards strength and conditioning basketball coaches were holdouts right and then you know when university of nebraska implemented an intelligent strength and conditioning protocol and started you know kicking everyone's butt that's when football coaches slowly started to accept the idea but it was a slow accept acceptance that really hasn't gained much traction until the modern era so you know we're still way behind the times in distance running because we're like no you don't need to lift weights and you don't necessarily need to if you don't know what you're doing, because you can get people hurt, but it is a valuable general preparation tool. And you can argue that hill running is a little bit more specific of a general preparation strength tool, which it is, but it's like everything, there's foundational ingredients that you do early that have central adaptations, which strength and conditioning does on the neuromuscular system. And then those central adaptations can be leveraged later on in the training program or training season, when you're then more focused on peripheral adaptations that have a little bit more transient time horizons. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's kind of the beauty of what we're, we're saying here is like that it, it, and it is like, I just want to sit, sit with this for a moment. Like Sarity is giving her belly at lifting and you can find some of these videos on YouTube before college football, before NF like, NFL teams way before Major League Baseball, which didn't start like really lifting until the the 80s and, and 90s with the Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire era. Like that's phenomenal. Like that that's decades upon decades ahead of his time, you know? But so that's what we're trying to get at here is if Sarity missed out and waited. Until he knew, well, he'd be dead. Right. And so, Sarity also was innovative on the nutrition stand front too. You look at it, it's a lot of really balanced, complex carbohydrates and proteins, whole, you know, fresh foods, not a whole lot of crap. And the thing to remember too is the pre-race meal in that era tended to be some tea and honey and toast and that was it. And we know from a glycogen loading standpoint, that might not, that might get you through the warm up but it's not enough to sustain you through like a 10K on the track or a marathon, right? So people 
in the short term are, are somewhat glycogen depleted. And this is when they're taking honey or excuse me, taking a uh, lemon juice as refreshment during the marathon, right? Like Zatapex, oh, give me some lemons <laughs> to create more acidity in my stomach. This makes no sense. But he was innovative enough to say, hey, we need to eat a little bit more of easily digestible foods before race on race day, because I'll give you more energy. And he was spot on. Yep, exactly. And I think this is what we're kind of getting at. We're not saying, but here, let's, let's kind of bring this home a little bit on this is you need to have that experimenters mindset. You need to have a little rebellion, but at the same point, if you don't do the work, if you don't take time to study, to learn, to experiment, to try, to prove your ideas wrong, then you go too far on the rebellious side and you get stuck on what I'd call the, the, the kind of crazy idea side, right? And, you know, you can see a little bit of the sincerity and, again, the prancing, biomechanics, all that stuff, but it didn't get so much to overwhelm what actually worked because like, I'm sure it became pretty clear. Like her belly, it wasn't going to prance his way to three thirty six <laughs> for 1500. No. Okay. Yeah. So it didn't work right in terms of, you know, performance stuff, whatever on the other stuff. But I think this is where you get is if you get too caught up without these checks, without the real world information, then you go down a rabbit hole which is what i call the crazy side it's yeah it's the confirmation bias when you get in the echo chamber and it becomes cultish because you just believe the thing because you believe the thing and there's no evidence that can sway you to the contrary right in this day and age when everyone's doing the research to decide what path to take with different medical interventions or life interventions or what have you well, your research is only as valuable as the amount of evidence you can find that falsifies your belief. So if I have a belief that I shouldn't have this medical intervention, and all I do is just confirm it with reports and people who, you know, compound that fear of the potential side effects of this medical intervention, but I don't look at anything that says, hey, actually, here's the value of this medical intervention, and then do that risk-reward benefit uh, weighing, you're not doing you're you're not you're you're crazy in terms of you're in this echo chamber and then you become kind of this cultish rebel and that's you know Steve and I's argument with you know our good friend Tony Haller and his philosophy of feed the cats it fundamentally does not work for distance runners if you just do that year round you can't it's impossible why because the aerobic uh, metabolism needs to be stressed by long, steady state type work to build efficacy and also build population of mitochondria. And we know that mitochondria legitimately eat the positive H ion protein or proton that creates acidity in the body. So why would I not want to do work that would increase density and efficacy of something that eats acidosis essentially, right? You can buffer and tolerate up to a certain threshold, but then you reach that limit. And that's why acidosis tolerance work is best safe for the last phases of training for people who are who live in that high acidity environment people 800 you could even you know do a little bit with some 10k people but it's mostly 5k to 800 right because it it's a transient quality that only takes about four to six weeks to realize but if you do that year round when you have excessive acidity in the blood excessive acidity in the muscles you're going to get overtrained because the body's going to be like, uh, I don't like this pH. What's going on? And that's why, again, the aerobic foundation or the aerobic metabolism must be stressed. So, you know, Tony has famously said, oh, yeah, that's how I train distance runners is the feed the cat program. And it's like, you know, just cut and paste. It's not a cut and paste job. Elements of feed the cats are really, really good for us as distance running coaches to um, utilize very, very much so especially when it comes to sprint and speed and fast type work, 100%. But this is where, again, you have to not be wedded to your, any idea and be able to cut the bag quick when it's like completely wrong and you just have a lot of evidence to the contrary. And you gotta go, hey, I was wrong on that one. Let's keep moving on. And that's where the scientific mindset and being a scientist really comes to play where you're, you, you, as they say in writing, Steve, and you know this, you have to be okay with killing your daisies. 
You may have wrote this great sentence or paragraph, but it and it's beautifully articulated. But then you look at the you know body of your work that you're trying to publish and go, there's no place for this. I got to cut it out. Just bye. You know. Yo, hundred percent. That's half of writing. <laughs> Figuring out what, what to cut. Um, Even though you're like, oh, this is a great idea, but there's nowhere for yeah, it to live. Nowhere for it to live. You got to cut it. No, I, I think you're spot, you're spot on. And I think, you know, where you see this a lot is we're actually lucky in the sport of track and field and cross country because we get to experiment and kind of see what performance lies. And as long as we're not super delusional, we get to see, did that work or did that not work? Did our athletes get faster or not? Um, we still have to watch out for it, as as we've kind of said here. But that performance metric, those race results help keep us in check if we have enough athletes. I always think of it as... Um, good friend strength coach dan john used to tell me whenever he was in doubt over whether a training method or new thing was worthwhile to explore or not he'd be like i go talk to the track and field coaches because they keep you centered right because he's like either throw farther run faster jump higher or you don't so like we have that centering mechanism where other sports let's say you're conditioning for soccer right and you don't have that race feedback all the time that tells you whether you're better or worse or football or whatever have you other team sports don't have it as direct as we do so i think that having that like skin in the game is important and you see this often if you go out and explore the world of you know, health and performance and all this stuff. And you go listen to some other, I don't know, high-end podcasts and hear some scientist or doctor tell you how to, how to, uh, how to be healthy and perform well. Most of the time when you hear their advice on like endurance or in their terms, cardiovascular system stuff, it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, they'll, they'll go tell you, you know, go train in this zone and then do some Tabata sprints or workouts, right? And that is always the giveaway to me that, oh, oh, you've read a lot of science articles and research on this stuff, but yeah, you don't understand interval training, my man. <laughs> you don't get it. And this is like the other end of the spectrum, right? We talk about the rebel, like how to keep that in check. Now, the science part is like, okay, how do you keep that in check? You got to have experience in the real world, working with real athletes, skin in the game, where they get better, they don't. Because, again, coming back to this, this, this uh, example, if someone, if some doctor says, hey, do some Tabata sprints, or they say, you know, this is the best workout for your VO2 max. Again, that tells me, what does that say? Ah, oh, you read a bunch of research. You don't understand interval training. Because us as track coaches understand that, like, you do any sort of workout for a short term that takes you to the well, you'll get better at something. But over time, it's just like you talked about in the sprint, acidosis training. Over time, doing that same workout over and over again, even if you think it is great, it is not going to give you the stimulus that you want, and it will you know in the case of tabata sprints when you're going all out for 20 seconds with 10 seconds recovery uh it will wear on you and you will you will fall apart and burn out and not get better the the key there is okay why well the science can't the science is short term it's six week studies that take a bunch of athletes you put them through something and you say oh in six weeks they improved this 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 and this Great. You know, it's like John and I have talked in past past podcasts. We had this actually a question on Zoom. It's like, oh, I only have I think it was like five weeks to get my athlete ready. Like, how do I how do I do this? And John is like, You got five weeks. Like you're not you're not and I'm paraphrasing, but you're not that worried about like burning out. Like give the bang for the buck stimulus, man. Like 
go go hit, hit the things that get you better real real quick real fast like you don't have to worry about the rest and and there's truth to that and that's how kind of research functions but in the real world we don't we don't function like that we can't we can't just have these short blocks so that rant what is that that's like again you got to be careful of going the other way of saying, well, the science, the research says this without understanding the limitations of it and how it works in the real world. And that's the confusing part, right? Like the reality is some coaches have really short time horizons to maximize improvement in an athlete. Some coaches have a lot longer time horizons. So it's the difference between understanding what are central adaptations right? Those things that take a long time to build, but once they're built, they have what I've talked about a lot of times, these long residuals. And then what are peripheral adaptations? Adaptations that are highly plastic, high dynamic, but also easy come, easy go, right? And it's interesting in preparing for the five-tiered mini course that we'll be rolling out, or I'll be rolling out here shortly on the uh, Scholar Clubhouse, which goes through why the five-tiered training system is perhaps one of the best modern synthesis of distance running training known to man and how every almost every modern training uh, paradigm that is highly successful echoes it is because of this thing that comes back to mitochondrial biogenesis. So the creation of mitochondria and the creation of efficacy of mitochondria. And the interesting is the timeline, the half-life of mitochondria tends to be a very short, about a week. And we know this in distance running, right? If you stop training, cessation of training after two weeks, and then you start running again, it's very hard, no matter how fit you were. It does not matter. Like you're like, oh, that three mile run at like, you know, the slow pace took everything I had, right? Because you just took two weeks off and did nothing. And this is why we advocate for continuous year round training is because once, but it's also once it starts to come back online, guess what? takes about two weeks to come back online because the, the protein turnover is so quick. And that's what makes sense about, say, the five-tier training system or Bowerman system where, hey, you know what they did? We're going to test, quote unquote, through either a race scenario or a time trial scenario about every two to three weeks where you're at and then base the new paces that we prescribe off that test. Coaches didn't know this at the time. You know, Bowerman didn't know this at the time. When they started to create, when they started to create this paradigm of these time frequent time trials to, you know, recalibrate, but they were basically just saying, okay, yeah, your mitochondria has increased in density or efficacy. You can now run these three quarter time trials without an excessive degree of uh, metabolites or acidosis being um, created because the contingency on every Bowerman time trial was you had to run the last three hundred meters all out, so you stay controlled. And they usually do like a 1200 or something, right? So you stay controlled for 900 meters and then you just whoop, as fast as you can go the last three, let's see what it is. And then based off the total time of that time trial, that'd be your new date and goal pace for the next training cycle. But, you know, it's, it's mind blowing because it's like, yeah, we now have science to understand these phenomena we know as coaches and, and reasons why I'm telling Steve, oh yeah, this is why we always keep the long run in for a certain period of time for a certain type of athlete once a week. And why Lydiard figured out once a week because the science on mitochondria demonstrates that the import of that. But then we also have things that we thought might've worked, but now the science got updated. And one example is that train low, low glycogen um, type of training protocol, right? So there was this concept of if you train a low glycogen state, you can increase your mitochondrial de density and efficacy, right? And then they're, now they're like, eh, maybe that doesn't really happen. We don't, we're not sure it might, but we think now that might not be what's going on. And you don't need to do the low glycogen thing. And Canova tried this with Moses Mozop and he's like, yeah, we did it. He felt like shit. So he stopped doing it. <laughs> and it's like, because Canova has that explore mindset, right? He's like, okay, I'll give it a shot. If the science is suggesting this, we'll see what it's looked like in the real world with, you know, our, person who is the perfection of mitochondrial density, an elite endurance athlete, he felt like crap. So we stopped doing it. And now several years after that, you know, science is like caught up, right? 
and that's that's the thing is like the 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 athlete feedback in the moment is the ultimate evidence and we never we should never never forget that that is to me that is the pinnacle of being of toggling between being a rebel coach and a scientific coach if you do something and the athlete feels better and performs better or gets better it works if you do something and the athlete does not performs worse doesn't like it feels awful probably doesn't work <laughs> yes it, it's balancing these things out and i'm glad like that canova example is is perfect right it's Let's see if it applies in the real world. And and that's always my test is I like take these ideas and then I apply them to myself or athletes and see, does this work in the real world? Remember, I, rem- I remember with Sarah Hall, like experimenting, we experimented with a uh, low kind of glycogen training to help support the marathon during specific workouts, right? And it didn't work the best, right? (laughs) We're just like, oh, this kind of sucks. And I talked to really good scientists before and like read the research and all this stuff and talked to other athletes. And but that's that's kind of what you do. You like take an idea, you experiment, you see if it actually works or if it influences like that athlete in a positive direction. And if it does, then it backs up, validates stuff. If it doesn't, then stop doing it. And it's like that explorer mindset within stuff. And the other thing that I'd also say is that often what you see is the research comes in and confirms what coaches often do, right? You gave the example of mitochondrial adaptations, right? Um, One of my favorite studies from, gosh, it was only a a year or two ago now, I think, um, took people took a bunch of athletes, runners, I think it was, and had them do like eight weeks of either continuous, you know, training, normal, kind of moderate, easy running, or eight weeks with including some what we'd call like VO2 max type training, you know, like, you know, five by four minutes or four by five minutes or whatever at at near 100% VO2 max. And what they found was very simple like the near VO2 max training, like gave you a nice big bump in terms of mitochondrial adaptations in the type two fibers. The continuous training gave you a nice big bump in the type one fibers. Mm-hmm. So you sit there and you're like, oh, well, no shit. Um, but it's it's great because it backs up, it backs up a very simple thing, which is like, we tend to think of like training often as like, does this get better and does this make me get worse? And what we forget is like when we're doing these various training exercises and workouts and long stuff and short stuff, all we're doing is providing a stimulus for the body to adapt in a slightly different way. And some of that training, you know, targets fast twitch fibers, some target slow twitch fibers, some target like this other thing over here. Um, But that's why we do a variety of work from sprinting to jogging. That's why when someone says like, oh, the optimal interval workout is this. You're like, optimal for what? Mm -hmm. Like, no, because like if I do five minute segments, I'm going to I'm going to get a little more adaptation here. But guess what? If I do one minute segments at this speed, well, I get a little adaptation in this other area over here. Like optimal means like balancing all these out for the demands of the race that I'm facing. And we tend to think as optimal as modulation or excessive polarization as well, right? Like, well, we only can do a workout on one day and that's it. And then we have to take these big, easy, and it's like, no, you can microdose the signaling, the stimulus throughout the course of your week. I was talking with my wife and we, you know, we're finding she's really sensitive to acidity. So when we do like any kind of type of anaerobic, you know, hard, fast, short intervals at, you know, faster than 3K pace, it kind of like slowly deteriorates her. And so we can't package 10 on a single session because we've noticed 
as she starts to age, she gets a lot higher sensitivity to it. But you can't neglect the work because of the neuromuscular benefits, right? So how do you package this in in the real world? Well, I was like, well, let's just microdose it. Let's just do two a day, you know, kind of throughout the course of your training week. And you just just do them like at the end of a run, in the middle of an easier run or relaxed run, you know, type deal. And just do them at really higher quality. You can do it as a fart lick, however you want. But let's just get the signaling in throughout the course of the week because it, since it's there's also neuromuscular adaptations, right? The brain, we know, needs that practice of, you know, coordinating those limbs in that exchange. And it it thrives on frequency it, rather than density. So if we frequently do it, five do two strides that are about 30 seconds at three care faster pace, five days a week, and you can get it in, that's a lot better than like trying to do it 10 on one day and do that once a week and then you're so neuromuscularly fried and acidic and shot that you have no appetite for it for the rest of the week. It just makes sense. But we tend to think easy days have to be easy. Hard days have to be hard. There's no in between. And it's like, no, there really is. There's a lot of in between. And that's our job as coaches is getting away from these overly simplistic models and just believing them because they're simple to understand and easy and thinking because it's simple, it's right. And that's what like Verkashansky and Zarkowski always talk about with the single factor supercompensation model, right? The supercompensation model is too simple to be right. It just is. It's a good introductory way to think about it. The better model is the fitness fatigue two-factor model. It's still just a model. The models are just simplifications of really complex phenomena. Endurance is complex. Speed is complex. The whole proposition is complex. And we know little bit. We know a sliver. But we generally know the what works and what doesn't work. And when you look through the arc of training history, you kind of see themes like fartlek. Farlick was then became more structured as interval. It then came even more structured as now what we call in the Canova era, this lactate clearance or alternation stuff, right? And what we're seeing is a steady march of like, yeah, intensity is the driver without a doubt. And the volume of intensity is the driver without a doubt. And when Zatapec became less competitive and Kuntz took over, what Kuntz do? He said Zatapec became volume obsessed. So he just did... 200 miles a week of interval training, of Zatapec style interval training. But um, Kuntz said, you know what, I'm just going to do like 12 times 400 really fast and build up to a place where I don't need that much recovery, 15 seconds. And then he became, you know, world record and dominant champion in the 5 and 10K. So it's understanding there's a balance there. And even um, David Castile, you know, in like early – um, you know, modern era physiology in the late 70s, early 80s said, looks like the optimal amount of mileage for a, an endurance runner marathon um, to about 10K is in the range of 65 to 100 miles a week. That looks like the optimal dosage. Now you're going to have outliers who might need a little bit more. You're going to have outliers who might need a little bit less. But somewhere in there is the optimal dosage of work because we also have to understand the structural breakdown with every foot strike you take. So you also have to, you know, the mechanical load does limit us as runners and runners coaches versus cycling and swimming. There's no impact stress, right? So cyclists, yeah, an easy recovery ride, six hours. There you go. <laughs> we could not do that in running and come back to create intense signaling the next day because the structural integrity would just wipe us out. So we got to understand it's so complex that we can't just say this is the best workout because there's far there's a lot of other considerations we have to take in our prescription of dosage of stimuli. You know, it's interesting. I think that one of the reasons we have less creativity in terms of our workouts now, because if you go back and you look at some of these, like these workouts by Igloy, for example, or Sarity, or, or even, even Shul's training log. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that it's like you have all this, what I'd call this mixed or this blended together workouts, right? I think what, what kind of put a stop to that 
And and Stample was very straightforward. Like it was very mathematical. So it wasn't too creative, but it's like very mathematical. But I think what, so the stopwatch changed that a little bit. But then I think what's changed this in the modern era is if you look at the research, like they do the same style of workout for weeks, Mm -hmm, months on mm -hmm. end, because that allows them to study it. Right. It's the only way to like, you can't like have all these like, well, we're going to do six by 400 at 3K pace and then two by 200 at 800 and then four by, you know, you can't like mix it all together because then mm-hmm. like in the research world, what you're trying to is- do is isolate something. Right. It's too many variables. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this from grad school. Like originally we were going to do a periodization study. Uh, my advisor ended up transfer or moving to another school so we didn't do it but the the development of that study was like a pain in the ass for me as a coach because i'm sitting here being like oh we're gonna test like these different periodization models um in a couple athlete or in some athletes but in order to get it to work like essentially I, i had to pick like easy easy workout and hard workout and the hard workout was almost always it had to be the same right you're just changing when it comes in and you look at that periodization study and you're like well no one does six by two minutes with one minute jog or whatever the workout was like three times a week for <laughs> you know 10 weeks straight and what whatever athlete is going to want to participate in that study be like i'm only doing that i'm not yeah. oh shit that's a huge risk <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like this is dumb as shit yeah, I'm but doing you that. have to essentially to isolate because you try to isolate all these variables to see which in a periodization study what are you trying to understand well whether you know doing it in this way let's say lots of easy and then the interval or mixed with easy and interval at the same time or backwards whatever interval workout then 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 long stuff you're trying to isolate the sequence of it. So the workouts have to be the same. <laughs> so, you know, relatively, there's a couple of different ways to tackle this, but it has, it, it, the point is you lose touch with what happens in the real world. And what happens because of that is we get this tendency to do, well, we're going to do on, you know, Monday, we're going to do six by 800 at 3K pace with two minutes rest. And then on Thursday, we're going to do four by mile at whatever pace with two minutes rest. And you get like these very distinct like blocks where it's like this day is this instead of what often occurred in the old school days is. And you even see this in in uh, Bowerman's training, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Bowerman, their training, you look at it and sometimes they'll do, I don't know, 300 on the track. And then they'll go run for 30 minutes and then they'll come back and do something else on the track, you know, and that doesn't occur today because we like these like very succinct, very one dimensional, like what I call straight intervals or straight repeats where we are targeting one thing instead of like microdosing, like you kind of said there. Where we think we're targeting one thing, the illusion, right? And that's... That's the thing, right? The whole energy pathway fueling substrate argument, right? Remember, ATP is the currency. And like your body has a lot of different mechanisms to create ATP to meet demand, which is great. But people who are like, aerobics is what matters because, you know, that's the dominant energy pathway for blah, 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 blah in the middle distance. So a lot of volume for your middle distance, guys. Well, yeah, but there's also anaerobic pathways there's also neuromuscular under you know uh necessities there's you know central there's uh you know oxygen and uh system exchange necessities like there's all this different stuff going on so to say today's a vo2 max workout and we're raising the vo2 and that's it it's like nope there's a lot of other stuff going on i I think you're right steve like we become afraid to be wrong and being afraid to be wrong means you're going to be conservative and go with what you feel like you know what works exactly. But 
the reality is you don't actually grow. You don't actually get better. You, you kind of stay stagnant. And the body, the one theme about the body as an organism throughout all science is, is an ad- it's a highly adaptive plastic dynamic organism. And it needs stimulation to adapt in a certain direction. And lack of stimulation is a stimulant. And it'll adapt in that direction. And what we know now is like one of the things in global mitochondrial health, right? And you, you listen to like really smart doctors, um, you know, who are studying this stuff and talking about why are we getting cancer? Why are we getting type 2 diabetes? And now the potential of type 3 diabetes on the time horizons. Why are we having mitochondrial dysfunction? And it shows like, oh, lack of movement. It's not the diet necessarily just the, as the only influencer right? And we tend to want to think there's only one influencer, but lack of movement's really important. Dan John, too, he talks about, you know, doing some kind of weight routine in a lot of his books and then being like, and then I'd walk for 30 minutes after my, you know, after I did my, my, my type of weights training. And God, I lost so much weight when I, when I walked for 30 minutes afterwards. And when I didn't walk for three minutes, you know, I kept the weight on. And it's like, well, yeah, we know this aerobic respiration does create this, you know, mitochondrial density impacting effect, which is great. And then the mitochondria is just really hungry. It's like, I tell people like to understand mitochondria, just understand, you know, essentially high school, uh, teenage boys, they just eat everything. It doesn't matter. They just eat everything and they're good. Like, (laughs) so if you have more of those in your system and they're just like, yeah, I'll eat that. I'll eat that. I'll eat that. I'll eat that. I don't care. Like, (laughs) and what's the byproduct? I mean, carbon dioxide in, uh, in water, right? Like, it's like, great. Yeah. And that's not harmful to my body. So, but you know, we tend to want to say, oh, it's, it's just one thing. It's the diet. It's the shoes. It's because it's easier. It's an easier narrative, but then that cripples us. And we're actually less innovative, innovative and worthwhile in our slow march towards getting better than we want if we just quote unquote play it safe. So like I always experiment some weird stuff. Like, you know, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try that. I'll try it on myself first. And if it's like, if the hypothesis holds true, I thought I was gonna get this reaction and get this adaptation in me, then I go and apply it to, you know, forward thinking athletes that I work with who wanna do it and try it out. And sometimes it works great and sometimes not so good. But the times it works great far outweigh the the times and the it doesn't work good because it doesn't completely erode or sabotage them. Exactly. And that's kind of that experimenter's mindset, again, that you have to have is don't be afraid to be wrong. Just be sure that you can identify when you're wrong and move and like shift, change, drop it. That's 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 the key there. It's like I think it's far too often now we get stuck. We get like, oh, I'm just going to play the low risk game mm-hmm. and try to be uh, the easy. A. I right. want the easy. A, right. Yeah. The, yeah. Instead of searching, exploring and seeing what works and. Again, sometimes you're going to go down some wrong paths, but those wrong paths are what Lydiard would allow Lydiard to figure out 100 miles a week was really good for his athlete, what allowed Sarity to figure out, hey, these guys need to lift weights. Um, it allows good coaches, you know, Bowerman to see, hey, we've got to apply this hard, easy principle, which wasn't a thing, really. Before, like he and others kind of uh, popularized that. Or you see, like, you know, that's the thing about the scholar program and why Steve and I decided to, like, make it and put it out there is if you are a scholar and you, you know, Steve and I go down these weird rabbit holes and haystacks and we find these really esoteric books. There's a book we just were talking about that offline that, like, gives really good detail of Igloy training by a author who was coached by Igloy. But it's in the weirdest name and talks about some other weird shit. And you're just like, what the hell? But it's gold there. And like, who would have found it? But, you know, someone who's like actively like has a rule. Like I go to the bookstore. I see like an old school looking running book. It's less than $10. I don't care. I just buy it. And then I read it. And I go, some of them are a little out there, right? But some of them like you find a gem. 
But what we did is and then we extract that and put that there for people to digest themselves as scholars, to give them more of an understanding and wheelhouse about certain themes that are globally present throughout the training paradigms of history. And then you can take those themes and enhance your practice and enhance the work you're doing with the athletes you're working with. Because it's like things like the progression run. Progression run, if you only did like one type of running, you know, in your like base phase, just do a progression run would be one of my like things. Because it's like it checks a lot of boxes, right? It doesn't check every box, but it checks a lot of boxes. And it's something that was used essentially from Lydiard on. I mean, that's all the marathon training was. They weren't starting right away at five minute pace, right? Those, you know, Lydiard's boy, they, they rolled into it. You go to like, you know, Kenya and Eaton, like the progression one is a staple of their daily training diet, right? Sometimes people just feel good and they get going. And that's, it's very, um, you know, um, impromptu. It's not like, Oh, well, I can't, I have to run this pace today or else. Like sometimes, yeah, you have the Canyon pulley pulley shakeout, but a lot of it is just like simple things we all know. And then you start to say, oh, it was employed throughout training, uh, through history by all these successful athletes and coaches. And then you go, oh, and here's some science that kind of validates why it works so well. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's the secret sauce. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's no secret. That's the secret. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's what I mean. There is no secret, but it's like exploring these things. So if you want to explore some more, go down some rabbit holes. And again, you know, I'll use this example for uh, about almost 30 minutes on one of our Zoom scholar session calls. We talked about breathing, nasal breathing, mouth breathing, whatever. And to give you a, a... a hint of what we concluded is there's a hell of a lot of nuance. And when you do it here, it helps this. When you do it here, it hurts this. And we go deep to understand. We don't just say, Hey, this is good for you or this is bad. Stay away from that. We go to understand and, and give you the knowledge of whether you want to apply it or not, or when to apply it or when not to, or what's right or what's wrong or what you should try and not try. And John and I experiment around with it ourselves. So that's what we're trying to build. We're not, again, we're not saying we got the answers. We are trying to adopt the mindset of the Lydiards, the Cerides, the Bowermans, and find that right balance between having a little bit of rebel, a little bit of science. And if we can stay in that, that sweet spot, then it keeps us in that explore experiment mode where we're Hopefully we can keep doing things better, keep innovating and be better coaches. Yeah. And that's the key, right? Is you, we have to understand if the body is dynamic, we should have a dynamic mindset. A lot of times what happens, you read something on Twitter or a post and like Twitter is great in a lot of ways, but it limits the amount of information you can deliver in a tweet. Right. But then people take it as an absolute, a static thing. Do this always. And you know, I take for granted that everyone has, like myself and Steve, a dynamic mindset. And so when we're talking about nasal breathing, and I was like, yeah, I've gotten my nasal breathing efficacy down to being able to run 540 pace just or slower through my nose. And then Steve's like, well, no, not that just means this, right? It just means like, for me, it is a in the moment feedback of if I start to run beyond that scope of that pace where I can't comfortably be breathing through my nose, that's when I'm at a lactic turning point, right? I'm moving from that initial lactic threshold or that aerobic capacity threshold. And I know that I'm in that turning point or as, you know, Steven Styler's quote unquote zone two in the zone three model, right? Because we have those two major lactic turning points, right? And the first one is, you, you know, some people call it the aerobic threshold or the lactate threshold where lactate first starts to like go above resting. And then the second one's the anaerobic threshold or the lactic turning point where it really starts to accelerate around about four millimoles or what have you. But then also remembering too, lactate's not the enemy. It's a fuel. It's a, um, it's a byproduct, a compatible byproduct that we can track. We can't track the positive H 
ions, the protons that are released that create the acidity. But we know lactate, right, is a complementary product that, you know, gives us an illumination that this ion has been created. And just how we thought lactic acid was the bad guy for a long time, and you could blame it for everything, DOMS, you could blame it for, you know, being lightheaded, you could blame it for all this. We know now the body loves lactate. The brain loves lactate. It's a good fuel source. But how it's created when there's a high anaerobic demand means you've got a lot of this other metabolite shit, these protons that can create this acidity, which is not so good. So it's this yin and yang, right? It's understanding like even then we thought lactate was this. Now we know better that lactate is that. But if you keep that lactic acid mindset in as the bad guy always, you haven't been dynamic enough to adapt or upgrade your understanding. And think of it a lot like you would your smartphone or your computer. It's constantly updating this new software update. We're working the bugs out here. We're working the bugs out here. We're now updated it here. It doesn't mean the last edition was bad. It just means now like the, this edition is going to allow us to be a little bit more swifter, clearer, crisper, and better with our delivery and execution than before. And so that's why you want to have that rebel mindset. Because as Vern succinctly put, if you wait for the study, you're too late. Exactly. Nailed it. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you got um, some valuable insight. Again, our job is to make you think, to hopefully help you think about how to become a better coach. Thanks again for listening. Check out the Scholar Program. Join the Scholar Clubhouse. It's all there for you you know, to take Join in. today. You do not want to miss the five-tier mini course that's coming. It's coming soon. It's going to be after Thanksgiving. I'll tell you that just because you know people got things to do. And I figured December is a really good time to roll it out because you can apply it to your indoor and outdoor training protocols. You know, the themes that you are going to be exposed to and see firsthand. So it's going to be a lot of fun.